Hello everyone, my name is Pamela Pitcher and welcome to my podcast, Awaken to the Best You. This podcast is designed to inspire and propel you to a newfound level of empowerment and clarity. Through cultivating the art of thinking, you'll learn how to detangle your thought knots and train your brain to break through obstacles. You'll learn to focus on what matters most and make effective choices to become a remarkable you. Hello, lovely listeners. This podcast will be of particular interest to hypnotherapists, NLP practitioners, psychotherapists, or anyone who'd like to better understand how hypnotherapy works. I first met my guest, Jos van Boxtel, a few years ago when he was a trainer at the British Hypnosis Research in London. He taught me self-hypnosis. His communication was clear, his training style was effective, and through his facilitation, I took my hypnotherapy skills up to the next level. Yoss has just written and published a new book called Stephen Brooks and the Art of Compassionate Ericksonian Hypnotherapy, for which Dr. Ernest Ross said, well, if it's possible to condense the evolution of psychotherapy over this century and Milton Erickson's legacy with clarity, simplicity, and compassion, this book surely sets the highest standard. Dr. Rossi is a psychotherapist and has been a pioneer of the somatic approach to healing. At British Hypnosis Research, founded by Stephen Brooks, I received a practitioner diploma with distinction in the Advanced Indirect Conversational Hypnotic Induction Techniques of Ericksonian Hypnosis and NLP in 2013. Stephen Brooks founded BHR in 1979, the Training and Practice Institute from which he has treated thousands of clients and trained hundreds of students in the art of indirect hypnosis. Prior to this, I had become a master of NLP, and I refer to neurolinguistic programming, NLP, as the social science of success. Upon completion, I felt I required a deeper understanding of NLP. I still had a few missing bits. When I studied under Stephen's tutelage, the questions that remained for me about NLP were clarified. Ericksonian hypnotherapy is named after Dr. Milton Erickson, who created the indirect method of conversational hypnotherapy. He was an American psychiatrist and psychologist specializing in medical hypnosis and family therapy. He created a conversational technique to communicate with a patient's unconscious mind, thus allowing them to heal themselves. He was considered a creative genius. He was a pioneer in hypnosis therapies to the point of achieving legendary status. Personally, I have suffered from depression off and on during my life. I no longer look at depression as a negative. It's simply my soul telling me that I'm off track and advising me to seek help and change what I'm doing. I was referred to a hypnotherapist during a time that I didn't realize I was depressed, yet I was confused enough to know that I needed help. Hypnotherapy changed my life for the better. From my perspective, Yoss's book is a triumph and a must-read for NLP coaches considering studying hypnotherapy, for hypnotherapists to raise their game, and indeed psychotherapists who wish to learn more about the field. In the book, Yoss pays homage to Stephen Brooks and his work, and rightly so. Yas told me Erickson is his guru, and one of his missions in life is to pass on Erickson's work to the next generation. 
He does this in collaboration with Brooks. His motivation comes from the highest good, as does his work with private clients and those he trains. In this podcast, you will learn of his values and beliefs and the troubled past that has created the man he is today, changing the world one person at a time. Should any of you wish to reach out to Jos, he can be contacted via his training institute in the Netherlands at www.mindspringtraining.nl. It is my pleasure to introduce you now to Jos von Boxtel. So welcome, Jos, to my podcast, Awaken to the Best You. I'm so happy that you've agreed to join us on this podcast. Yes, good morning. Happy to be here. It's great. And you're coming to us from somewhere in the Netherlands. Yes, that's right. From the city of Utrecht, the center of the Netherlands, right at the heart. The heart. Man <laughs> at the heart. You are a hypnotherapist, a yes. train, trainer and author of Ericksonian Hypnotherapy and Neurolinguistic Programming, yes. and owner of the MindSpring Training Institute right. in the Netherlands. So how would you describe what you do? What I do basically boils down to helping people. I do that on a daily basis in my practice. I help people with any kinds of problems or symptoms, mostly psychological, emotional problems, of course, or psychosomatic problems, various kinds. Uh, so that's part of my job, running my own private practice. It's about two-thirds of what I do. And the other part is training other people, training colleagues in hypnotherapy, Ericksonian hypnotherapy and NLP. And I write books, of course, of which the first one has just been published. Yes, which we're going to talk about in a moment. For those laymen who haven't had an experience with hypnotherapy, how does hypnotherapy work? Yes, good question. Hypnotherapy is an experiential approach, which means that what I do is give people an experience, trance, in which they can contact their own unconscious minds with the assumption that the unconscious mind has a solution or has a resource or some kind of creativity to solve that problem. So hypnotherapy is a way of allowing that to happen, to make a shift from conscious reasoning and thinking and trying to solve the problem at the conscious level, a shift to the unconscious functioning and experiencing and allowing the unconscious to create a solution. And hypnotherapy is an approach to stimulate that and allow that to happen. And I've all, I always say that on my podcast and to my clients that, you know, we have the mind, 95% of the mind is the unconscious mind. Yes. And it's very important to learn how to focus our conscious mind to achieve things. And it's the unconscious mind that actually brings that about. Yes, the conscious mind is very important for solving practical or analytical problems. Of course, we use that daily, uh, but the unconscious mind is more suitable for solving emotional or psychological problems. So that's uh, why hypnotherapy is a very powerful approach. It's all our creativities in the unconscious mind, isn't it? Yes. So there's a few arms to your practice. Who is seeking your help these days? And has it changed in light of COVID? Uh, it changed a little bit. <clears throat> in terms of people having COVID-related problems in terms of fear, fear of being infected or being depressed from sitting at home for a long time or being fearful about the changes in the world. 
So there are a few kinds of COVID-related problems that people come to see me for. And other than that, I still get my regular clients suffering from fears or phobias or depression or addiction or any kind of trouble they might have. But there is a certain shift that I've noticed during the last six months. In your experience, how long does it take to help a person through depression? Hypnotherapy and LP, they are short-term approaches. So usually I see people between three and eight sessions, something like that. Obviously, it depends on the severity of the problem that people have, the goal they want to achieve. But in general, it's a short-term approach. So the idea is and the objective is to, to see people a couple of times, make a major shift so that they are able to help themselves. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that really to hypnotherapy and neurolinguistic programming is that it provided me and as a coach, it provides and a hypnotherapist, it allows me the tools to help others help themselves. And yes. you know, one doesn't dwell on the past and relive it and over and over again. It's not helpful to focus on the hurtful things in life. And no. so how to change your focus to engage your unconscious mind and, and move forward quite quickly. It's pretty amazing tools to use. Yes, yes, they are. Absolutely. Can you tell the listeners ab about your story that has led you to where you are now? I think you grew up on a farm. Yeah, I did. I grew up on a farm in the south of the Netherlands in a small village. I was a very shy and silent boy, actually, which is remarkable because language has become my expertise in the end. Uh, but I grew up talking very little in a very small community. And I knew nothing about psychotherapy or hypnosis or psychology at all until my early 20s. I studied physics at the time. And during that time, I had a very severe personal crisis in my life. So I started searching for approaches to find help. During that time, I discovered all kinds of things like meditation and NLP, which was just coming up in the Netherlands at the time, the early 80s hypnosis, body work. It took me quite a while, but in the end, I found a, a hypnotherapist who really, really helped me and made a major change in my life. And actually, two things happened at that time. First of all, I got over my problem, my depression, my fear. And the second thing was that I was inspired to do this kind of work. He was an example and an awakener at the same time. So at that point, I realized this is what I want to do. So were you depressed because of your fear? Was that a result of your fear? It was part of it. I grew up as a very anxious boy and youngster, and I became depressed from being lonely, being frightened to socialize, and ending up being pretty lonely, drinking a lot. So depression was the result of that, I think. So that was quite a, a bad state I was in at the time. And how long did it take this individual, this awakener, to change your life? <laughs> Not very long. <laughs> it's amazing looking back at back at that. I had I had tried several things which didn't work and didn't help me. And I saw him maybe five times, brief sessions, like twenty minutes, half an hour. I had an amazing change. My self confidence grew, my self esteem got a lot better. I overcame my fear. I could continue my life. So that was a very powerful experience I had in terms of what is possible, in terms of change and what an impact one person can have on somebody. And that's when you decided to become a hypnotherapist? 
yeah, well, not that concrete at the time, but I knew I wanted to do something like that. So your mission today is helping others healing their wounds and overcoming their fears and achieving their goals and dreams. And where does your passion come from? Does it all stem from this work with this individual that you did? Yeah, it's an important part of it. During that time, I learned two things. One thing, obviously, was how problematic somebody's life can get and how difficult it can be to get out of it on your own Mm. and even how difficult it is to find help. So that's one thing I learned. And the other thing I learned was that if you find the right person and the right approach, change can be very quick and effective and healing. So looking back, that was an important start of what I developed later and a huge part of my passion in life now, my mission in life, the ability to, to make a difference in somebody's life. So did you go through a lot of people before you found this person? Yeah. The good thing is is that there's more trained hypnotherapists and NLP practitioners out there in the world. I think having to overcome, help people see through the myths of hypnotherapy, because you practice Ericksonian hypnotherapy. Can you talk about how that's different than what people might have, how they might have viewed hypnotherapy in the past? You know, especially from watching television and things like that. there's There's a lot of misconceptions out there. Yeah, there is. There is a lot of misconception in terms of uh, stage hypnosis. So many people know hypnosis from the kind of manipulative and show-oriented stage hypnosis that they see on television or they have experienced. And the main difference is, I often need to explain that to my clients, is the main difference is that on stage, the hypnotist has control over the subject. That's the whole idea. So the hypnotist is in a position of power and the subject is submissive, he's doing what he's been told. The funny thing is in Ericksonian hypnotherapy, it's actually the other way around. The hypnotherapist facilitating a shift from conscious to unconscious, and the power is in the unconscious mind of the client, the subject, so to say. So the fear that many people have of losing control is not realistic in a sense that they, yes, they lose conscious control, or conscious resistance, or skepticism, or whatever you might call it. But at the same time, they gain unconscious influence. Unconscious, I wouldn't call it control, that wouldn't be the right word, but unconscious functioning and influence and creativity. Hypnotherapy is just to elicit that, to trigger that, that process. And working with the client's unconscious mind. And can you take a moment to tell us the listeners who Milton Erickson is? Because he's had such a strong influence over psychiatry and hypnotherapy. And most people don't even know who he is. That's a strange thing that, that basically everybody knows who Freud was in being the first psychotherapist. And as far as I know, Milton Erickson has, has at least as much influence, if not much more, on not just hypnotherapy today, but also psychotherapy in general. So Milton Erickson is called the grandfather of modern hypnotherapy, which is absolutely true. He has developed the idea of natural conversational hypnosis, which is very different from classical direct hypnosis. And he introduced the concept of utilization, which means that the hypnotherapist utilizes whatever the client brings to the session for their benefit, be that something positive or negative, it doesn't matter. 
So mednertin has, has had a huge influence on hypnotherapy today, modern hypnotherapy, but also on many different approaches like NLP, solution-focused therapy, system therapy. So many approaches, therapeutic approaches nowadays benefit from this work. And that's for sure. And I'm also an Arizonian hypnotherapist. And, you know, he developed a language that speaks to the unconscious mind. And it's a very poetic language. And I, I utilize it a lot in even in my writing. So if I'm a client with an issue, and I'm thinking of seeing you or a hypnotherapist, and you're going to utilize whatever the client brings to the session. So can you give an example? What does that mean exactly? I have a phobia, for example. I come to you, I have vertigo. Utilization means utilizing that very problem or that very symptom to solve or change itself. One of the usual ways that Erickson, Milton Erickson developed to do that is to prescribe the problem with a certain shift. So I might give the client a task of creating vertigo in a certain circumstance or in a certain way that is a little different from what he or she usually experiences. And that is a very strange thing. It's very paradoxical because no client expects to be told to do their problem. But doing that, it kind of brings the problem under their conscious control. It reframes the whole idea of the problem. And they are stimulated to do it a little differently. And to do your problem a little differently means a a change. And a change is the first one of the next change and and in the end solving the problem. And just seeing it in a different light. Yeah. Because people get stuck in their perception and sometimes they need a nudge or two. Yes, people usually have two problems. They have the problem they have, symptom, and they have the way they think about the symptom. Sometimes the second part is worse than the problem itself. Yes. So what beliefs empower you? I guess two, two major beliefs is one is that people have strong unconscious resources that they can use or utilize to heal themselves and change. Anybody has them. Whether or not they are accessible or available, that's a different question. But that's a very strong belief that people have, that comes from Ericsson, that people have unconscious resources to change. The other one I have and use all the time, I think, is my own ability to trigger that, to facilitate somebody to find those resources. They are probably the most important beliefs that I work on every day. Okay. Well, I guess you see the results. So that must be a strong belief then because you are changing people. That's actually how the beliefs developed by seeing change and believing it more and more and more. And do you help people uncover their limiting beliefs? Because what we believe is what we become. Is that part of your work? Yes, absolutely. A major part of my work is uncovering the limiting beliefs. And then, of course, the next step is changing them, facilitating that process. Yes, I agree. Limiting beliefs are a major part of people's symptoms and problems. And often they're unconscious. Yeah, oftentimes they're unconscious. We're not aware. We're not aware of what we believe about ourselves or the world or other people or our abilities. What values guide you? I tell clients that when you do something that's against your values, you kind of feel a rub. Something just doesn't feel right. I call our values our inner GPS. What values guide you? I think the main value that guides me in my work and in my life is growth. 
I've been learning throughout my life, all my life. I'm still learning. I want to learn. I need to learn. And that's something I use for myself and also facilitate in, in other people, trigger enough people. I believe that changing and growing and learning are one. The clients sitting in my chair here are learning something about themselves, about their unconscious mind, about their abilities, about their beliefs. So I guess that's the big one, growth. Another one which is more client-oriented is safety. I want people to feel safe in my practice and in training sessions as well. So whenever I get that feedback from people, I know I'm all right, I'm doing okay. And people tell me they feel very safe in exploring their feelings or revealing their secrets or in training sessions, experimenting or asking stupid questions. So I think vulnerability, safety, allows people to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is the basis of growth and change. Well, I did my self-hypnosis training with you and I remember just being comfortable. So you create a very safe place for people to be. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so do you have any plans on expanding your training institute at all? Or Yeah, that's my plan for the next five or maybe 10 years. I don't know. So I've been running my practice now for about 15 years. And I want to shift a little bit towards training and writing books. I will continue the mix of the three things because I enjoy that very much. They relate very well to each other. So those are my plans for the future, to make a shift towards more training and, and writing levels. To pass on the legacy, I guess, of yes. what you know. And you've done that. So this year, you've published the first in a series of books featuring the work of Stephen Brooks. This one I've just read is called The Art of Compassionate Ericksonian Hypnotherapy. And it's the first in your series. And this particular book is on phobias. So what specifically caused you to decide on this subject? Two things. I studied Stephen Brooks in Ericksonian Hypnotherapies, and he made a lot of video recorded demonstrations uh, that I studied on various problems and symptoms that, that the subject had. I picked out the one on phobias and described that in a book. The first reason was that many, many people have phobias. It's a very common problem. And the second reason was a little bit more technical that in this demonstration of helping a client with spirophobia, he uses a lot of Ericksonian language, indirect suggestion. So I could, uh, how do you say that in English? Kill, kill a bird, kill two birds in one stone? Mm -hmm. Is that an expression? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the one part was describing a technique, an approach for curing phobias, and the other part was describing indirect language patterns. So those are the two parts that you can learn reading this book. Communicators, the unconscious mind, use indirect language and how to use a technique with your phobias. So this morning I um, made the bed, and when I put the bedspread on, there was a spider the size of my palm on there. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I don't like them. I'm so thankful I don't have a spider phobia. I probably would have ran out of the house. You, anyway. you, didn't, you didn't kill it with the book, did you? No, no. So. <laughs> um, Stephen Brooks, he's, he's the one that taught me hypnotherapy. And yes. can you say a few words about this amazing man? You put him on the cover of your first book, so he obviously means a lot to you. Yes, he does. I met him about 10 years ago. I had already studied there during the therapy for quite a while at the time. But when I saw his 
one demonstration of this on a video, I was struck by his elegance and, and use of language and effectiveness. So I immediately booked up with, uh, with for his training in the UK and did his trainings about 10 years ago. And, and we became friends and colleagues. And I continued to study his work, which led to this cooperation of writing this book. And he's absolutely one of the Ericksonian people who has a brilliant use of language, indirect language, the use of implication, uh, poetic language. So, yeah, he's, he's absolutely an example. And the second part is that he's a Buddhist, so he comes from a philosophy and state of compassion, which obviously was also part of Ericsson's work. He was a very compassionate work. Stephen Brooks has somehow deepened and developed this state and concept of compassion. So Stephen Brooks actually lives in Thailand now, followed his Buddhist heart and has made it home. So what is a phobia? Personally, I know well, too yeah, well, sure. because I've, got, yeah. I've had a few of those, but because uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people have come to me and said, I have a phobia about public speaking, when really they don't have a phobia, they have no. a, a fear. It's different. There's a difference between a fear, for example, for public speaking, which is a very common one, and a specific phobia for an animal or an object or a specific situation. So, for example, a spider phobia is a very specific, immediate fear of the animal or of the spider. And it's a very quick and emotional, physical response to seeing a spider or even thinking about it. So there's very little cognition involved, whereas a fear of public speaking involves many more thoughts and beliefs and expectations. So there's a lot more cognition involved in those kind of fears than in a specific phobia, which is very primal. It's a very primal link between seeing or hearing something and a panic response. Yes, and fears don't necessarily affect you as physically as phobia does. Personal experience when I had a phobia, my palms sweated, my stomach had butterflies, my heart yeah. was pounding, I was perspiring, and it's just completely yeah. irrational physical reaction yes. to what was going on. Totally so, irrational, it's very physical, very immediate. And oftentimes people know, usually people know that a spider or a bird or a snake is not dangerous. Uh, and, uh, they know that at conscious level, but the physical response is as if it's very dangerous. So why do you think that so many people have them? I don't know. That's a good question. I've never researched that, actually, why, why many people have I know many people have them. They're funny little things, but they can be exhausting. And so that's one of the main reasons I just decided to continue studying neuro-linguistic programming, because when I was a subject of fast phobia cure, and my mm -hmm. phobia was gone within 20 minutes. That was life-changing for me. Yes. So yes. it's quite amazing. Can you maybe take a moment to tell people how you actually cure a phobia? Yeah, sure. I oftentimes use the same technique, so the fast NLP fast phobia technique. Maybe the difference is that I, I use a lot of indirect language, which is the same as what I described in the book Stephen Brooks is doing. He's mm -hmm. basically using a form of fast phobia process but it's extended and, and enriched with a lot of indirect suggestion and implication. What I usually do is a phobia. Sometimes I use the EMDR protocol. There's, there's an EMDR phobia protocol as well. What does that stand for? EMDR is eye movement reprocessing, uh, desensitization reprocessing. 
It's in a process that has been developed uh, over the last 20 years. Very popular in, in Poland, certainly is. Very effective as well. So there's a phobia protocol for that as well. I use that sometimes. And other than that, I explore what beliefs or experiences or traumas or whatever it is that is behind the phobia that needs attention. And could you, without providing a name of a client, keeping that private, of course, but could you share a client situation where you, you actually help them? Yeah. I had one, one guy who was terrified of pigeons. Actually, he was very limited in going places because pigeons could be anywhere, especially in the city where he lives. And he actually had, which was interesting, a conscious belief that pigeons really were dangerous. So he, he was actually warning other people about it. But somehow he also knew that it wasn't realistic, his fear. He had several traumatic experiences with his pigeons, bumping into them or kind of attacking them, at least in his experience. And the funny thing was he also had a traumatic experience with exposure therapy, which he had tried before he came here where the therapist had taken a pigeon in a box and opened the box and he freaked out. So that was another trauma. Oh, dear. I believe I did both. I did the NLP fast phobia process, which helped a little, allowed him to make the first step. I did the EMDR process after that and did some belief work because he had limiting beliefs about, about his phobia and about pigeons and birds in general. So those were a couple of sessions, but I think he was able to reduce it to about 20%, and that was fine for him. He was still yes. a little bit sensitive about patients, but uh, he, he could continue with his life sometimes. Well, I think it's healthy. You know, I actually had a client who had a pigeon phobia as well, but I said to her, you know, I'm sure you don't want them to become your friend, but at least now you can walk amongst them. They're yes. flying around. Yes. <laughs> yes. But as I think people, if you have a phobia of bears, you know, you want to have a certain fear level. You, know, yes. you don't want to start to go up and pet bears. It's just not no, a healthy no. thing to do. And it's an Ericksonian concept as well to leave a little bit of the problem. So I often do that. I often kind of suggest to people a little bit of the problem. And of course, the implication is that they will lose the rest of the problem. On their own. Yes. So the book that you wrote is amazing. I have never seen such detail on Ericksonian hypnotherapy ever. And to me, it's sort of advanced hypnotherapy read. So I guess I'm just saying this because it's not really targeted to the lay person. I don't think no. somebody interested in maybe seeing a hypnotherapist should read this book. Can you talk to the audience that you had in mind when you no. wrote it? Yes, the book has been written for professionals. That's definitely true. And they can be hypnotherapists or NLP coaches or psychotherapists of any approach who might want to learn about Ericksonian hypnotherapy. And they can use the book not just for learning how to treat the phobia, but use the description of the phobia session as an example of how to use Ericksonian techniques and language. So I think that the book is a good resource for learning indirect language patterns and implication, poetic language. And the phobia session is both an example of how to treat a phobia, but it's also an example of how Stephen Brooks is using indirect language. And it's the first in a series, so there will yeah. be others, yes. So do you have an idea of how many more you're going to write? Well, the more compliments I get on the first or the second one, <laughs> of course, the more I'm motivated to write more. 
three-hour plant now. The second one will be on obsessions, on OCD. And again, this will be a description of a videotaped demonstration of Stephen Cox. So that's the second one. The third one we haven't decided yet. So there will, will be three at least. And after that, we'll see. And these videos that you talk about, would anybody be able to find them on YouTube? Because I think they'll ask that question. No, they're not on YouTube. They are part of Stephen Brooks's online training. So people who sign up for that training, they have all the videos available, uh, including the one on the Spider-Fit video that the book is about. And do you provide online training as well? Do you have videos or is it always live with you? So far, I only have videos in Dutch. So that probably be so, so interesting for international audience. I plan to do that as well. I plan to make some videos and demonstrations in English because I, I offer a training in English uh, as well. So I'm not there yet, but I'm planning to do that in the next couple of years. So lastly, knowing everything that you do now, what message do you have for your younger self? The farm boy. Yes, the farm boy. The silent farm boy. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yes. It's interesting hearing that question touches me, actually, because this is where I came from. And the message for myself, the little boy in me, is to be free, to come out of that cage and speak up and be emotional, which is something which I wasn't allowed to be or couldn't be when I was young. So I was going to ask you, actually, did you learn your shyness from your parents or to be quiet from your parents? Not directly. My mother was actually, she was the opposite of being shy. My father was shy, so I, I guess I modeled him. There's um, so many of our um, thinking patterns, you know, we learn them when we're so young and we're just following our parents around like, you know, little ducklings behind ducks, you know, the big ducks, right? And we don't know how they affect us. But they do. They do, absolutely. I think well, it's just wonderful that you are on my podcast speaking up you're you're writing you're writing books and speaking up and you're you're training people to speak up and you've done a complete 180 from that shy little boy yeah i did absolutely but if you hadn't been that way if you hadn't found that individual that helped you so much you may never have been on this path no that was a turning point i'm grateful until today that i met him the funny thing was my parents encouraged me to see him in a time where I never followed my parents' advice. Luckily, I, I followed this one. Oh, that's interesting. So they knew of him, did they? Yeah, they knew him. I didn't know him, but they did. Oh, okay. So that's wonderful. You got that support from your parents. And yeah. Didn't expect it. So we, no, uh, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> one of my beliefs is, and it's a common one, is that everything happens for a reason. Because without that experiences that you had, you wouldn't be who you are today doing these amazing things for these amazing things for people out there for your clients and i would definitely would recommend you for anybody any of my nlp colleagues or hypnotherapists who have not studied ericksonian hypnotherapists you're definitely a, a great trainer as well well thank you very much well thank you and thank you for joining me yeah um, you're welcome i look forward to book number two Yes, I'll get going. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe and share across social media. I'd really appreciate that, as Awaken to the Best You is my way of giving back 
the more the merrier. And I'd also love to read your comments, so please send your feedback my way so I know how to help you the most. Thank you again. Ciao for now.